Hello, I'm Dr. Gloria Horsley, and I'm her daughter, Dr. Heidi Horsley. Heidi and I want to welcome you to Open to Hope Conversations, the podcast. We believe that the greatest gift you can give yourself after a loss is hope, using this moment to connect with others who have not only survived, but thrived. So let's get started. Welcome to the Open to Hope Show. I'm your host, Dr. Gloria Horsley, with my daughter and co-host. Dr. Heidi Horsley. Well, Heidi, I am so excited today. We're going to be talking about the grieving brain. And I will say that this book, The Grieving Brain, by Mary Frances O'Connor, is an amazing book. It's, it's not all new information, but it's new to me. And I've been in the grief field and health field for 40 years. And the information that's been brought to me is really life-changing. So I'm excited to have our guest on today. Do you want to introduce her, Heidi? Sure, mom. And I'm looking forward to hearing about this because, you know, we talk about the psychological and emotional impacts of loss, but I've never really delved into what happens in the brain and, and thinking about a grieving brain. So I'm looking forward to the show. And we are going to talk about the grieving brain today. And we have someone here that is an expert on this. And it's Dr. Mary Frances O'Connor. Mary Frances is an associate professor of psychology at the University of Arizona, where she directs the Grief, Loss, and Social Stress Lab. She is also the author of the book, The Grieving Brain. Welcome to the show, Mary Frances. Oh, it's so good to be back with the two of you. It's great to be on today. Now, I'm going to get right to it. There's so much information to your new book is that you've kind of written it for the lay public, right? So absolutely. Try to get this wonderful information. How many years have you been in the field? Uh, about 23 years now. All right. And, and in a pursuit and studying the grieving brain. Well, what would you like newly bereaved people to know? I think especially early on, so many experiences that we have feel like, am I going crazy? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I think when part of my motivation for really looking at this from the perspective of the brain is that so many of the things we hear can actually be tied back to how the brain encodes our loved one and then how it comes to understand and adapt when that loved one is not on this earthly plane any longer. I think one of the most confusing things for people is they feel like they're not really gone. Like they might just walk back through the door again and they know on the one hand that it's true, right? They, they have memories. They can tell you, yes, I was there at the bedside or I was at the funeral, but it's because of the way we encode a relationship in the brain that there's an everlasting quality to it that says, you're my one and only, I'll always be here for you, you'll always be here for me. And that belief doesn't change just because we have a memory of the funeral or, or the death itself. So you have these two conflicting streams of information. On the one hand, I know you're out there, I should go look for you. And on the other hand, you know that's not possible. So the disorientation that people experience and then the incredible time it takes to really learn that this person is gone. I think that makes sense from the perspective of the brain. This is bringing up a personal thing for me because my father died 16 months ago. Oh. And, 
you know, I wasn't there because it was COVID. I was here in yeah. New York City, but I, I flew out to California recently to see my mom. And when I, I knew he was dead, I know he's dead. I've been grieving his loss. But when I walked into his house, I was like expecting him to be there. Yes. And I was overwhelmed with grief that he wasn't. It's that expectation. You know, the brain is really a, it's a prediction organ, right? It's there to take thousands of days of experience and then predict what might happen next to help us cope with it. Well, if you have thousands of days of experience and if you're surrounded like you were, Heidi, with the, all the cues, right, of your dad, then of course your brain is going to fill in all the blanks and expect him to be there. That, that makes sense for a prediction perspective. And, and I think he said that it's more than one time. It's not the brain suddenly learns. Heidi goes in, she smells the smell, she sees the sights. What, what struck me about reading about your research is how many different places in the brain are connecting. It's kind of electrical impulses through the neurons. Is that how it goes? Yes. So it's so, electric going up and, and you're smelling in this part and you're seeing in this part and you're hearing in this yes. part. And so, you know, all the activation and, and the brain doesn't suddenly learn, does it? That's right. Making those new physical, mechanical connections between neurons so that they can fire and tell the next neuron what information to send along. That's a physical process. That takes time to build. And so you, you can't do it overnight. You can't force your brain to learn faster. You know, I'm, I'm thinking she walks in the door, she sees his desk. But maybe in the five or six other times she comes in and smells the smell. That's right. So, you know, it's so many pathways yeah. that have to, have to change. And I don't know, for me, when my son died, you like to think that you could think your way out of it. Mm -mm. That there's some kind of big logic. Yeah. Because I worked at the University of Rochester and I was an supposed expert in grief and loss when he was killed. And I had articles and things, and I knew exactly what I was gonna do, like yearning and searching and breath, waves of grief and all that. And I did it all. Yeah. Like, you can't think your way out of it. No, you really can't. And it's funny, you know, my mom died when I was about 26 and then my dad died about seven years ago and it was such a different experience. So mm -hmm. I do think that knowing a lot is helpful, just like you said, because you realize, oh, this is totally normal, right? The fact that I'm crying every day, oh, that's actually pretty normal. So information is helpful, but it's not the same as it feels different than you think it's going to. It just does. You know, uh, as Heidi said, uh, her dad died uh, a year and a half ago, and I'd been married for 60 years. Oh, my. And um, I said to a friend of mine, this is going, having my son die was like going to Mount Everest without oxygen. Yeah. Having my husband die was like going to Mount Everest with oxygen. Yes. Oh, that's brilliant. Yeah, I took the journey, but I knew it was going to yes. be okay along the way. Oh, I really love that. That's such a good way to put it. We gain experience, but the first time around, it's just 
a mystery and it's so intense. It's like the volume got turned up on everything. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, and you don't feel like the intensity is ever going to end. That's right. At that moment. So I'm wondering, knowing this information, are there things that we can do so that our brain isn't so fired up? I don't even know if that's the word, you know, every time we get yeah. triggered or think of the person or want to see them, et cetera. I think of a couple different things. One is the idea that if you just know that this is going to come in waves, and even though you don't believe it, that the wave will also pass and it's going to come again, right? Even just knowing that on some level can be helpful. I just accept I'm in the, I'm in the surf right now. And I think another way to think about that is also that Grieving is really hard on the body and the brain, right? All our stress hormones, our blood pressure usually goes up for a while. And so finding ways to give your body a break, like you were saying, that could be going for a walk for some people, doing yoga for other people, going for a run, um, taking a long, hot bath, ways that you can really help your body to relax as it's trying to do this. It's funny, the description I use for a lot of people is, it's like you're trying to learn calculus while running a marathon, right? Mm -hmm. It's affecting both your, your mind and your body. But I think while you can't make it learn any faster. We know that avoiding situations, right? Avoiding conversations or people or places that can make it harder for the brain to learn, right? The brain actually needs that experience. I'm thinking of Heidi going to the house to continue that experience. The brain then can learn that her dad's not there. That's exactly right. Yeah. New pathways. That's Mm -hmm. interesting. Well, what what should you avoid? I mean, what makes it worse? Well, I think it is completely natural and typical for people to have a lot of what we might call intrusive thoughts early on, especially. So these are thoughts that you didn't mean to have. You just suddenly are thinking about either the person who's died or the event, the death event itself, um, or a conversation you had right before. Um, And so these thoughts, they come to you, you know, when you're trying to fall asleep or you're sitting at a stoplight or they just intrude on you. They feel very uncontrollable. And I think many people experience this as the would have, could have, should have, right? So these are all the scenarios that you run through your mind. If only the doctor would have tested for this. If only I could have gotten them to the hospital sooner. All of those stories that we tell, the trouble with that is there's no answer to them. And in that virtual reality you're spinning out, the end of all of those stories is And then my loved one lived, but the reality is your loved one didn't live. And so if we continue, you know, over time to spend a lot of time in these scenarios in our head, running them through, it actually prevents us from spending time in the present where we are actually living our current life. And so it can really take you out of the situation you're in with your living loved ones, playing with your grandkids or working on a project at work. Um, So I think letting some of those thoughts, knowing that they're going to come, but also saying, you know, I don't need to go down all those roads can be helpful. 
You know, I notice uh, in the year and a half since uh, Phil died that when I get together with widows, they will talk about their husbands who have passed away at, at lunch. Yeah. And they will say, well, we would have gone to the lake this summer, yeah. but we won't be going. And I was struck by your book talking about the fact that that kind of confuses the brain. Yeah, absolutely. You have this whole plan of what's going to happen next. And that plan has a big we in it, right? Not just the me and the you, but it has a big chunk of it that's actually we. We are going to go to the lake, right? We are going to travel when we retire. And when the person dies, it isn't just the you that dies. It's also the we that can't do those things. So it really does feel like a piece of you is missing because there was that in the brain, there was that overlapping representation that we is encoded in the brain. And so it can be sometimes very difficult to figure out what, what does me do? I don't know what me even does because it's been we for so long. So I think you know, it takes a lot of courage. I can imagine, you know, going to dinner with friends of yours who were a couple, right? That you used to go as a foursome or going to the lake, right? That takes a lot of courage to walk into that situation and say, okay, what is this like now? What part of this am I enjoying? What part of this is hard for me? And how do I make my way forward? So it's an identity, it's an identity shift. Yes, absolutely. You, you lost the identity, you, you're, who you are. Yeah, that's and right. Now you need to move into the next chapter yes. of who you used to be. Now you need to move into the next chapter of who you are now. That's right. And we have a hard time moving forward. We do. The next chapter. If you think about the words that we use. So let's say I use the word wife to describe myself. Mm -hmm. That word implies two people, right? Yeah. If I use the word daughter to, to describe myself, that still implies two people. And so figuring out how am, am I, am I still a wife? Am I a parent? Am I a daughter? Am I a sister? How, how does that look now is I think an example of the way that people can feel kind of lost and, and things can feel like they aren't very meaningful because yourself has actually changed because the other person died. And when I'm thinking, uh, I belong to a golf club and they always called me Mrs. Horsley because my yes. golf club is very formal. Right. And so after my husband died, I asked him if they would call me Dr. Horsley. That's wonderful. And I didn't even think about why, but yes. I'm like, I'm not a Mrs. Horsley anymore, but That's I am a doctor. Right. So why don't you talk, yeah. you know, use that name? So I'm thinking my brain was orienting to them calling me at the club, Dr. Horsley. That's and right. I'm kind of like, is that kind of pretentious for me to do that? But now I understand more what I was trying to figure out. Yes. I think, this is, I think this is so much of it that our brain is doing things. And then we don't even understand always why, you know, I remember I tell this story in the book and, you know, compared to the death of, of say a husband, this may sound silly, but after my cat died, I started buying flowers every week. And I genuinely didn't even understand why I was doing it. I thought, this is strange. I've never really bought flowers before because the cat, Foster, would have eaten them and then thrown up all over the house. And it was like my brain was sort of establishing, is it true 
that that he's not there. And it's almost like, well, if there are flowers, there's no foster, you know? And, 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 and so we sometimes do things and then have to kind of look back and try to figure out why our brain wanted us to do that. Now, that gets to me the question of, is one loss worse than another? Mm. That is a, you know, <laughs> I, I think people, I, I don't know why this persists, but it really does. So, you know, we know that when I say I'm an expert on grief, of course, I'm an expert on grief on average, right? Or patterns that are, are true across people. But each individual is their own expert on grief, right? They're the own expert on their own life and their own relationships. So when we look at data, yes, we can say that the death of a spouse and the death of a child, on average, appears as a greater number and intensity and frequency of grief symptoms, right? But it isn't because they are a spouse or a child necessarily. It is because that we for a spouse and a child is just so encompassing, isn't it? Where often, if we have a parent who's lived across the country, we have our own life and our own habits and, and the we is important, but, but often quite small when we're older adults. And when that parent dies, it's sad and it's intense, but it often doesn't have the same impact as someone we're living with or now, someone we're in charge of. Now, what I'm thinking of, it's neurons. If you're seeing somebody more, your neurons are firing more often. If you're taking dinner to them, if you're meeting with them, uh, your brain is firing more. They're yeah. building more pathways. There's both, I think, the habits in the brain that, the, that they have to unlearn all those things when you live in the house with someone. But also, just like you say, that we is a bigger number of neurons. This will sound crazy, but uh, there's animal research where they look at rodents who pair bond for life. And we know there are neurons devoted. They only fire when the, the rodent is approaching his pair bonded mate. It's the only reason for the neuron to fire. And as that relationship gets stronger between the two of them, there are more neurons that are devoted only to firing when they approach their mate. And so it just, it reminds us of how important relationships, those close relationships are to our survival. Have there been any studies done on the biology of women growing babies in their stomach and then having the baby die? Is there, is there any neurological connections? You will be kind of shocked by this, but there is a study that has been done, a neuroimaging study. So looking at the functional patterns of firing in the brain in women who had uh, a pregnancy end before term. So before the baby is born. And in this neuroimaging study, they looked at women who had had a full-term baby and, and these women whose baby had died. And they can see differences between these two groups of people when they're looking at a baby's face. Now, obviously not their own baby, but just a baby's face. They're showing different patterns of reactivity. And we know that there are specific parts of the brain. We have a study of 
uh, women looking at their child and fathers looking at their kindergartners, actually. And in both of those studies, we see this region activated. It's called the nucleus accumbens for those of you who might care, which is probably not most of you. But this region is very active. And it's the same region we see when someone is looking at their rom romantic partner, right? Falling in love with your child and falling in love with your spouse has some similarities to it and probably in the brain as well. Mm -hmm. So that would mean that even an adopted child, you might be doing the same neurons, your neurons would match. Absolutely. So you think, I think about it this way, as soon as we have the potential idea of a child, right? You start bonding with that child, mm -hmm. right? You want to find out as much information about them as you can, even before they're born, right? We want to know their sex. We want to know all sorts of things. And it's because that we relationship is representational, right? It's an image in our head and we bond with that image. And then at some point that image is also physical. So that relationship starts long before a child is born and a child doesn't have to be physically born from us in order to have that we represented in the brain. I, I like this research because my sister and I adopted daughters. Yeah. We went to China and adopted them. And when I got my daughter's picture, yes, I didn't see her for a few months. I got the picture, but didn't go to get her from the orphanage for a few months. And I put the picture all over the apartment. Yes. I started bonding with this picture. Yes. And I'm like, I said to my husband, how can I fall in love with a picture? This is weird, but I am. I'm feeling very connected to this photo. Yeah, it's incredible. And all of our hormones and neurochemicals, you know, our loved ones, our children, our spouses, our siblings, they are as important to us as food and water for survival, right? Human beings don't thrive without these very close bonded relationships. So of course it makes sense. All our chemicals are trying to motivate us to reach out and get them and, and, and spend time with them. Well, and, I, and I'm thinking of sibling loss and whenever anyone, my mom just said, you know, let's talk about if there's a loss that's more difficult. That's a hard concept for me because the worst loss that's ever happened to me was the death of my brother. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know anything more, more, you know, difficult for me, but yeah. you know, part of it was that we, we walked together through life. Yes. And, and I thought we were going to grow old together and die relatively around the same time. And when he died, it put everything I believed in into question. That's right. I thought, wait, he's 17 and he's dead. I could die. Yeah. My sister could die. Like any, like it just really yeah. flipped my world upside down and my belief system. This is why I think it, it isn't really the category of relationship that's most important in terms of the way it will impact us. So it is often a spouse or a child, but a sibling has usually been there as long as you've been conscious, right? Mm -hmm. You will never have another person in your life who has all those shared memories with you. Who else understands your parents as well right. as your sibling, right? Mm -hmm. It just, that's how it works. Yeah. And so losing that irreplaceable we is deeply, deeply painful and, and troubling. And the brain, again, it's the brain rewiring. I mean, yeah. we, mm -hmm. we think yeah. it, it's, it's interesting. The brain comes up with clever ideas to help <laughs> us too, if mm -hmm. we allow it to. Um, 
you know, I wanted to ask you, what's the difference between depression and grief? Mm, I think this is a really important um, distinction and something that a lot of counselors and psychologists and psychiatrists are not very clear on yet. But we know from research and we know from talking to people that grief and depression are different. So you can have depression after the death of a loved one. I actually had depression myself after the death of my mom, but it's different from grief. So with grief, there are these waves of just intense yearning and, and emotional pain, but there are also times in the day when you can laugh about funny things that your loved one did or, or tell stories about, you know, the pride you might feel in how you cared for them. There's negative emotions and positive emotions that kind of go back and forth through the day. For people who have depression, there's very, very little of the positive emotions. So that makes it a more global experience. So with grief, we have yearning kind of specific for this person. Depression doesn't actually have yearning as a part of it. So you may feel sad and guilty and worried and, and all these other things about lots of situations. I'm worried I'm not doing enough in the world. I'm, I'm, I feel bad about the way I treated you know, my, my cousins. It, it's lots of things, including the loss of the person. But with grief, it's very focused on the person who's died. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Well, what would you say to people who have been bereaved in the last couple of years? I think that we can think about the difference between grief and grieving. So grief is, you know, this overwhelming wave, this feeling. And grieving is the way that that changes over time without actually going away, right? So Heidi, I know right now that if you saw something that your brother had written, you would have that same wave of grief. It doesn't matter how long it's been, right? But the grieving means that it also, that, it, that the experience changes over time. So now, like you were saying, Gloria, you're, it's more familiar, right? Like the first hundred times you're like, I'm not even sure if I'm going to get through this moment. And then the hundred and first time you're like, this is terrible, but I do know that I'm going to get through this moment. And that change is what we think of as grieving. So grieving also means that we hit different stages, right? My, my sister is engaged right now and there will be a wedding. And I know that on her wedding day, we're going to have a wave of grief about my mom not being there, right? Who will have died, you know, years and decades before. But we know that's going to happen because we're in a new place and there would have been a we on that day. And we can imagine that. And then there's the loss that, that she's not there. And so it doesn't mean we did anything wrong in our grieving just because we have grief. There must be some little neural connection that you're going to see her. Yeah, <laughs> you visualize her as something. That's right. Some li little neural connection that comes. But how would the world be without people and without those neural connections? And without well, and I even I even remember the other day, Mom, my niece got into graduate school. Yeah. And she, you know, call, I called her and she said, you know, when I found out, I was so happy, but I cried because yeah. I couldn't tell Grandpa. That's right. And he would have been so happy. 
Yes. Yes. And that's the carrying it forward, isn't it? So it isn't that the person goes away. It's that you carry their absence. And I think that's hard to explain to the people around you sometimes, but you got it, Heidi, right? It's not that grandpa doesn't exist now. It's that I could have told him and I know how he would have reacted. I know he would have been so proud. And I can share that with you because you know how proud he would be. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, talk, I know towards the end of the book, you talk about uh, the importance of developing new relationships. Yeah. It's something, well, uh, an older man was, I was talking with the other day around the anniversary of his grandson's death. And he said to me, you know, I go back, I wish I could just go back and do something different before that happened. And I think about that a lot. And he said, but the thing is, there are still a lot of living loved ones that need me. And I think that is some of it, being able to see that grief is something that we almost all will experience. And so it means it's not just my grief or your grief, but there is a connectedness. Once we've walked through that door, uh, really coming to understand what it means to, to have a death, a death of a we, it does actually connect us with a lot of other people, right? Through history, through our community, through our family. And although the experience is going to be different, there is a connection there that if we can find a way to reach out, that can enable us to feel rooted in the living world still. Mm-hmm. And taking a risk and having courage and uh yeah and develop a new relationship. Yeah, it's hard. Well, listen, your book is absolutely phenomenal. And I hope that we've inspired some people to get that book because we weren't able to cover some of the wonderful research that will make you realize that all of this, uh, what she's talking about is research-based. And these little experiments with rats going to the tower and (laughs) food and how the brain learns is absolutely fascinating. So um, please, everybody get, where can they get your book, The Grieving Brain? Anywhere books are sold, Amazon, Barnes and Noble. uh, You can get it on Audible and Kindle. So reach out and uh, maryfrancisoconnor.com for more information about me and the research I do. Well, thank you so much for being on the show and for all of your wonderful research. It's very exciting to have you have a book out for the lay public. Thank you so much, Gloria and Heidi, and for all that you do to bring this to people. Thank you, Mary Frances, and thank you for normalizing so much of what we go through after loss. Yeah. And thanks, everybody, for joining us on the show today. And Heidi and I always want to remind you, if you've lost hope, please lean on ours until you find your own, and God bless. I'm Dr. Heidi Horsley. You have been listening to Open to Hope, the podcast. You can follow Open to Hope on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. To learn more, visit us at opentohope.com and go to Apple Podcasts to subscribe. I'm Dr. Gloria Horsley. Join us again next week for another Open to Hope conversation, where we invite you to lean on our hope until you find your own.